Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and uh, welcome to this latest vodcast. And this vodcast is actually the first one I'm physically recording in the year 2009. A few have been posted, which we finished around Christmas time, 2008, and they've been up the last few weeks. So this one's going to be showing up on Martin Luther King Day, January 19th. In looking at the podcast for this coming year, 2009, and looking at some of the work I'm looking at doing this coming year, I thought one of the things I want to focus on is accuracy of CT as well as how we manage our clinical practice. So I can ask this question, in 22 years of CT, or make that 32 years of CT, are we really more accurate today? Well, we know we are. Technology has gotten a whole lot better. The acquisitions of CT, the scan times have gone from minutes to subseconds. Resolution has improved substantially. The capabilities of dual phase and triple phase of dual energy and perfusion are all things that have really impacted on what we could do. Data acquisition, 2D reviews on PACs versus the old film, our increased knowledge base, the increased experience we have in being able to look at different studies, and of course the role of 3D mapping, optimal visualization techniques, all indeed become really critical. We're also aware that no matter how good CT gets, there are always certain realities. One is every imaging tech will always have limitations. Every technique just has limitations. You could overcall or undercall, and there's always that need for balancing true positives versus false positives and true negatives versus false negatives. And I will admit, as in a legal case, everything is there in retrospect. But I'm talking about what is it that you should be able to see, what is it that you can see on a daily basis. Now, in saying that, I would ask the question, do you believe that you're reading every CT scan optimally? You know. Well, the answer is probably not. You're looking at axial images. Typically, most people are only, and that's just not enough. And what are the limitations in your practice? Where do the limitations come from? And that's one of the things we're going to address over the next couple talks. So, for example, one limitation might be the scan protocols. You have a new scanner. Do you have new protocols? Are the protocols matching your scanner? And what about your technology staff? Are your radiology technologists really up to the task? Have they been reprogrammed and retrained? Are they up to date? And even if they were terrific two years ago, how do you maintain their excellence? You know, the questions we ask about protocols. How do you use IV contrast, injection rates, dual flow? Uh, do you use saline? What is it you're doing? And the big question, of course, I always ask people at our courses, are you a 5 by 5 millimeter CT study protocol site or is it more like sub-millimeter, 0.75 by 0.5? It's a big difference. We've published articles on that. and That's one of the things I'm going to stress with you over the next couple uh, podcasts. Now, in that same vein, what I'd like to focus on in the rest of this talk is really what I would call practice management in CT, which means is we need to actively manage how we do CT. And one of the big things we do, and we'll talk about many things from protocols to technologists, but what do you do with incidental findings? And you know, the one thing that's true is the better the scanner you have, the more incidental findings you have. And one of the things I've noticed in our practice, as well as everybody's practice, is that the individual radiologists have different recommendations for specific CT findings. And this can drive the referring clinicians crazy, could also result in less than optimal patient care. And the fact is, we should have some standards. Now, what's the issue? Well, for many things, there's lack of well-established guidelines in the radiology community. 
Also, there's lack of confidence by some radiologists in declaring something a leave-alone lesion without additional follow-up studies. There's some radiologists who just cannot not recommend another study. Sometimes we have poor clinical history, and so a nodule, for example, incidentally found in a patient who's a non-smoker, and it's 8 millimeters or 6 millimeters might not be important, but if the patient has metastatic melanoma, it's important. So that's why at times recommendations will vary also. And then again, different experiences. Sometimes people make decisions based on their experience. Sometimes their experience is right, and sometimes their experience is wrong. Now, how would you solve this problem? Well, national guidelines, and I'll show you for some things. Lung nodules, Fleischner Society, they have guidelines. Institutional guidelines, what do you do in your institution? Have you come up with some guidelines? How do you manage a pancreatic cystic lesion, for example? Individual guidelines are great. At least you should be consistent with yourself. But again, that's problematic. If you have 10 individuals reading CT with 10 guidelines, it can be very much problematic. And a lot of this stuff is just back of the envelope. It's back of the shoe, back of the pants, however you want to put it. The bottom line is often it's not based on any published literature. It's not on any documented standards. So what I want to do is that I'm going to have some exhibits at RSNA. I'm going to have some papers. Um, and what I want to do over the next few lectures is look at some of these specific problems that we encounter. And I came up with the top 10 and define what is the best practice. Some things like lung nodules, I can give you published guidelines. On some things like a thyroid nodule, I can give you some published literature. On some things, I'm going to tell you what we do. And on some things, I'm going to kind of waver a bit. So the things I'll think about, thyroid nodules, incidental thyroid nodule, what do you do? Incidental lung nodule, what do you do? 5 millimeters, 8 millimeters, 3 millimeters, coronary artery calcifications. I'm not talking about calcium scoring when you're giving an Agassiz score. What is it if when you see calcifications on a CT scan? With faster scanners, we see them all the time. What do you recommend when there's extensive calcification? Should you get a CTA? Should you get lipid profiles? What do you recommend? What about an incidental 3 centimeter adrenal nodule? What about a 2 centimeter pancreatic cystic lesion? We're seeing them all the time. What about a vascular lesion that's not definitely a hemangioma and it's not a cirrhotic patient? We have a high suspicion of it being a hepatoma. Is it just a flow-related change? What do you recommend? What about a high-density renal lesion and non-contrast CT? Or rather on a contrast-enhanced scan with no non-contrast CT available. What do you recommend? Are you talking about tumors? Could it be a high-density cyst? What do you recommend? We found a lot of intersusceptions incidentally now. And I've spoken to a few people, Mike McCary, Alec Megabo, Karen Horton. Everyone has the same experience. Well, in the old days, we got uh, small bowel series. Patients went to surgery. You never found anything. So can you just leave some of these alone? They're not obstructing. Is it worthwhile pursuing? What's the bottom line? What about these splenic lesions? One to two centimeters, single or multiple. They're not enhancing. The patient's not febrile. What do you do with them? Are they simple cysts, old infarcts? What is it you're doing? What about an ovary? I see this all the time. People comment, advise ultrasound. Uh, premenopausal, postmenopausal, what do you do when? Premenopausal, 25-year-old woman has an ovarian cyst that's three centimeters. Well, that's not uncommon. It's going to be gone in three weeks. You don't need an ultrasound. You don't need a repeat CT. But what is the correct answer? Now, of course, when we look at some of these things, demographics will be critical. You know, how things are managed, like an ovarian lesion in a 20-year-old, and an 80-year-old is going to make a big difference. 
clinical history, how a lung nodule is managed in a patient who has a melanoma versus an incidental non-smoker is critical. Clinical presentation, of course, how the patient presents. And of course, other CT findings, the presence of nodes, the presence of disease in other organs, the presence of vascular involvement. There are many other things or other factors from other studies that will help us in making um, these decisions. But it's important to recognize as we're going to the subsecond scans that incidental findings are going to increase. It's not like you're going to buy a better scanner and they're going to decrease. If you want to get rid of incidental findings, go buy a scanner that was made in 1980. The resolution was so poor, the slice thickness was so large, and there was so much motion, you never picked up incidental findings. Life was good. So a case in point is coronary artery disease. Um, you know, Siemens introduced a new scanner, this flash. You can do a chest in 0.7 seconds, which means you may see the coronaries really well. Are you going to have to look at the coronaries carefully in every single patient looking for stenosis? Will that be part of what's assumed to happen on a routine chest CT? And if you don't look and a patient gets an MI a year later, is somebody going to sue you? Are we going to turn into cardiologists where we're going to have to think about that we only look at what the requisition says to look at rather than everything we can look at? Great question. You know, there's no doubt. We know in our hearts, we know, forget legal guidelines, we know best practice is you're responsible for looking at the entire scan and not just simply what the study requires or requests. You've got to look at everything. So let me take some examples and we'll go from there. Okay, thyroid nodule. You see a nodule in the thyroid, five to millimeters, two centimeters. Incidental finding, the highest scan you're getting on a chest CT, totally incidental. What do you do? Do you mention the report and bury it in the body and don't comment it on again in the summary and do not provide guidance or recommendations? Do you do the world-famous device clinical correlation? Do you recommend ultrasound? Do you recommend it based on size, number of lesions, biggest lesion, density of lesions? Do you ignore it? Or do you do all of the above at different times? It's a great question. Thyroid nodules are very common. A couple articles, and I'll share this one article. Prevalence of incidental thyroid lesions in the general population seem to be high. 10 to 40% on ultrasound studies and up to 50% on autopsy studies. Now, most of these are benign. However, the risk of malignancy ranges from 1.5 to 17% in incidentally detected lesions. 17%. Now, in this article, the authors looked carefully and they said, well, can you determine what about um, you know, the, the relative potential for lesion being malignant? Could you do something there? Well, malignant nodules show nodular or rim calcifications more frequently than benign nodules. The AP to transverse ratio of greater than 1 was more frequent in malignant nodules rather than benign nodules. And there was a higher mean attenuation value uh, in malignant over 130 than in benign lesions. So that sounds great, but those are really relative comments. It's not really good rules. And what about this case? Cystic lesion, or it's relatively cystic looking, right lobe of thyroid, incidental finding. You blow that off, it only measures 50, but it's a dominant nodule. What do you do? Well, this was biopsied. This was an aggressive anaplastic carcinoma. Doesn't look very aggressive, but look at it. And you could see it on PET. And another point being, now we're seeing more lesions on PET. What do you do with a hot PET nodule in the thyroid? What do you do? That same article by Yoon. 
we found that at least 9.4% prevalence of malignancy among incidental thyroid nodules. Almost 10% of their incidental nodules had malignancies. The further evaluation with ultrasound and biopsy should be performed if the nodule shows CT features suggesting malignancy, as I mentioned, calcification, AP to transverse ratio of over one or higher attenuation value. So again, what do you do? It also makes the point, and one of the things we're looking at is if you pick up these incidental thyroid nodules, forget that anaplastic case for a second, are those aggressive nodules? Would they really cause the patient problems? Or are we just biopsying and creating our own problems? That's something we need to look at a bit further. Now what about the adrenals? We've spoken about that a lot. I've given you lectures about adrenal incidentalomas, which means you just pick up an incidental adrenal lesion, patient has no hormonal issues, there's no known malignancy. Um, what is the management? So this lesion here, left adrenal gland, the issue typically is we have contrast scans. So we know under 15, under 10, some people say under 17, on a non-contrast study, under three sonomies or four sonomies, round, it's an adenoma, but adenoma is enhanced and typically we give contrast. And what do you do with this lesion? It's one and a half sonometers has a little cystic area centrally, but what do you do with this? Do you biopsy it? Do you follow it? What do you do? Well, do you get a non-contrast scan? See what its density is? Do you do the adrenal washout? That's something we'll discuss. And so again, what do you recommend? Do you mention it? Do you advise clinical correlation? Do you say, do a dedicated adrenal CT scan to look whether it's low density and non-contrast, or what its washout values are. When do you do this? Do you do this on every single patient? Do, do you ignore the small ones? Or again, do you make different decisions at different times? And again, here's just another example. This was an adenoma, but you couldn't call it an adenoma from this contrast-enhanced scan. It was an incidental finding. When you did the contrast-enhanced CT sequentially over time, this left adrenal lesion ended up being an adenoma. It had a greater than 50% washout. Now, of course, with the adrenal, like with other things I mentioned about asking the right questions, is it truly an incidentaloma? Do you have the full clinical history? Maybe the patient does have an occult malignancy. Over 4 cm, you can't use the rules. What about its density? To me, if it goes too much above 110, you worry about a pheochromocytoma. So washout values can be greater than 50% in pheo. So if I see a lesion enhancing to over 120, I'm not going to call it an adenoma. I don't care how much it washes out. I'm worried about a pheo. And again, old films, what can you do? So again, another good example. Another thing, what about lung nodules? What do you do with lung nodules? Um, this case, what do you do? This is under two centimeters. Biopsy it. Get a PET scan. Is it an incidental nodule? Do you follow it? Well, good question. Then the other thing is, is the nodule truly incidental? Maybe you don't have the full history about a known malignancy. You typically don't know if the patient was a smoker. What about the size? Well, that you can figure out, and you can figure out if it's single or multiple, and that lesion was metastatic disease. Now, the good thing about lung nodules, and we're talking about small lung nodules, the under one centimeter lesions, the Fleischner Society and the American College of Chest Physicians have parameters, recommendations based on nodule size and low and high risk patients. And I'm just going to give you an example and we'll speak about this in more detail later. But this looks at nodule size and whether you're low and high risk and it gives you recommendations about follow-up and timing of follow-up. This works very nicely because you can be very specific. Seven millimeter nodule in a non-spoker, bring them back within the year, 
then within two years, and if no change, forget about it. Now, what about those small lesions? What do you say in the report? You want to make certain that your group is saying the same thing. Uh, Dr. Rich Webb, one of the world-famous uh, chess physicians, speaking in our course in February, has his recommendation. He puts in his report, this nodule is not likely of clinical significance in a patient without known cancer. The large majority of such nodules are benign. If clinically indicated, follow-up in one year would be helpful in assessing the significance of this nodule. If the patient has a known cancer, follow-up in three months is recommended. So he has very specific recommendations. It's like a macro. You put it in your report, but again, the clinicians feel very comfortable. They get used to your recommendations. Liver lesions, what do you do with these indeterminate lesions? What do you do with intussusceptions? And here's just an example. Do you operate? Do you do small bowel series? Do you do a dedicated CT with CT and geography? What is it that you should be doing? Do capsule endoscopy? What do you do? Same thing, what about a renal mass? Incidentally detected. It's solid, but is it a high-density renal cyst and you don't have the non-contrast studies and you only have one phase? What do you do? When do you bring the patients back? And again, these splenic lesions, what do you recommend? And as I said, what about the coronary calcifications? And what about pancreatic cysts? We see so many cystic pancreatic lesions these days. How do you manage these patients? It's not a trivial question whether they're communicating or non-communicating. There's many reasons for cysts. What do you do? What's the correct strategy for managing these patients? And, and that's something that indeed becomes very, very important when we look uh, very carefully at these lesions. So again, uh, cysts can be anywhere from pseudocysts to cystadenomas to cystic islet cell tumors to IPMNs to serous and mucinous cystadenomas. How do you know what to do? What do you do with this case? Lesion tail of pancreas and in body of pancreas, it's cystic, well-defined, water density, incidental finding. You can see it nicely on the reconstructed 3D views. Well, these are typically IPMNs. Our rule at Hopkins is under 3CM will follow these lesions. There's a 10% chance of these lesions uh, harboring or becoming potentially malignant over time. But we see so many lesions. We published this article that uh, with better CT scan, seeing small pancreatic cysts are indeed very common. And on a 16-slice scanner, it was 2.6%. We see it more commonly in older patients. We saw it more commonly in patients of the Asian race. But again, what do you do specifically with these cases? Um, you know, you can operate on everybody, but there's operative mortality, the cost. Do you need to operate? We have a much more conservative management. Now, a case like this, you look at this one, here it's cystic, but you look at proponents of it, there's septations, there's slight nodularity. That's not the one you're going to follow. That's the one you're going to remove. This patient had early dysplasia, so you're able to cure this patient. But again, we need the rules. So we say 3CM and purely cystic, no septations, no nodularity, no irregularity. Not like this one where we see the irregularity. What about this one? Tail of pancreas over 3CM, calcifications. Could it be a microcystic or cirrhosis adenoma? Indeed, possibilities. But you need rules. And I think we only will do better as we have rules. So I think the next few lectures, I'm going to go into more detail. The key to practice management for all of us is planning for the long term and designing protocols that everyone in your group can live with. You need to come to some consensus. That's not always easy, but you can't have 10 different responses for the same exact case. And revisiting protocols in the workflow is often the key to developing a cutting edge practice. And that too is something we'll look at. 
And with that, have a great day.